Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. Welcome to Speakeasy with Annie and Carla, Conversations at the Margins. Over to you, Annie. Hi, everyone. It's a really exciting year for Hepatitis C in Australia. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with one of the key contributors to Australia's groundbreaking approach aimed at eliminating Hepatitis C within a generation. Yes, within a generation. And it's all about a deal securing treatment access for everyone. Uh, Today, we're talking with Professor Greg Dorr, uh, who is the head of Viral Hepatitis Clinical Research Program at the Kirby Institute at University of New South Wales. So to help us stay on top of what's happening in this very fast-moving space, Greg has been the driver of a newsletter, you may have seen it already, which is called Monitoring Hepatitis C Treatment Uptake in Australia. The third issue of this was just published and uh, there's a link to this on our podcast site so you can go and find out more about it. But Greg, to start, to celebrate 2016 World Hepatitis Day, July 28, let's talk some more in detail about hepatitis C treatment access in Australia. So Greg, to kick off, what is equal treatment access? What does that mean for Australia? How does it compare to other countries? Uh, good morning, Carla. Good morning, Annie. Great to be part of the podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Look, it is an amazing time uh, in terms of the response to hepatitis C in Australia. And I, I think when we realised that we were going to get such broad access to these new therapies, I think no one really predicted how well the initial months of the program would go. Um, there was a lot of concerns around um, would it work in terms of the relationship between specialists who'd been sort of treating hepatitis C obviously for some time and other practitioners that were now being able to prescribe these new therapies? And there was a lot of, I think, hesitancy and, and just general sort of um, anxiety around how we do this. Um, I think what the first few months of the program has shown us is that the key elements of creating broad access to people living with hepatitis C in Australia uh, are part of the package. So we have the right regimens, for example, that are highly effective, well tolerated. Um, We have also the capacity to build programs of treatment in settings that traditionally have not had the sort of level of access as the large sort of tertiary care-based clinics. And the key element within that is the ability of all practitioners potentially to prescribe these new therapies. Um, And that is, maybe revolutionary is too strong a word, but there's no doubt that that is quite unique internationally. Um, And already we're seeing the fruits of that. So in the first few months, our sort of monitoring of the treatment scale-up has shown us that around 18,000 people living with hepatitis C have commenced these new therapies. That equates to about 8% of the total population of people living with chronic hepatitis C in Australia. Just to put that in context, um, countries such as uh, Spain, Germany, the United States, who started their interferon-free therapy programs uh, either late sort of 2014 or early 2015, in their first 12 months of the program, uh, they treated around about um, 7%. So mm-hmm. in a whole year of access to these new therapies, 
um, they were only able to treat 7%. That's still far mm. superior to what they'd been doing in the interferon containing era. We've done that in three months. Um, and there's no reason why we can't keep the momentum up because of, as I said, the, the key elements we have as part of the package. Mm. So that, that was going to be my kind of follow-up question, Greg. Mm. Thanks for the segue. <laughs> Is, uh, you know, 18,000, a range of 15 to 20,000 in three months. It's, it's so impressive. But really, can these numbers keep tracking like that over time? Yeah. Look, I think if we particularly, ha- I think when we take into account things like stigma and discrimination issues, you know, maybe commenting on that a little is that is that a factor in uh, keeping the numbers tracking in that way? Sure. Look, if we had a fairly narrowly focused uh, rollout that was through the traditional sort of clinics, through specialists uh, who'd been treating hepatitis C for some time, there's absolutely no doubt that the numbers would start to come down quite uh, significantly. Um, We're already seeing that in some of the bigger clinics. For example, I work in a a large tertiary clinic at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, but I also work in a methadone clinic and I work in a community health clinic. Um, And we're seeing the sort of large cohort, if you want to call it, of people that have been sitting in the big clinics waiting for these new therapies to arrive, Mm. having been initiated, many of them, in the first three months. So um, you know, we've started more than 400 patients at St Vincent's in the first three months of the program, and our numbers are starting to you know, fall off a bit in terms of the numbers we're initiating e- each week. Um, but why I'm so confident that we will be able to keep up the momentum is that I can see already the uptake by general practitioners and other pr- practitioners mm-hmm. starting to take up that slack. Mm-hmm. So one aspect of the Australian program is that GPs can prescribe, but they need to consult uh, with a specialist, and that consultation could be um, as simple as a phone call or an email describing the key uh, characteristics of the patient, whether it's okay to go forward for treatment. So I'm getting more and more of, th- of those consultation requests. Um, to every week, I would get um, a lot, mm-hmm. um, which is great because it means that the system's working. It means that many people are accessing therapy through the non-traditional sort of access points. I'm also seeing the take-up starting um, in drug and alcohol settings as well, and it's going to take a little bit more time for those settings to really get geared up in the same way that the big sort of clinics were geared up, in a sense, from day one. Um, So I'm, as I said, very confident that Part of the solution is to create multiple access points. There's no doubt that many individuals living with hepatitis C are very happy to come and sit in the waiting room in our big public clinic at St Vincent's, but others are not, and others would prefer to access treatment uh, where they're getting their methadone or buprenorphine in drug and alcohol Mm -hmm. clinic settings. Um, Others would prefer to go to a community health clinic or a general practitioner. Others uh, have no choice because they're in prison um, in terms of access to hepatitis C therapy. So I think, and getting to Annie's point about stigma and discrimination, Mm. is that what is the key is to get more access points, more people involved, so that there is choice. And if you leave it to a narrow sort of framework in terms of the services and the clinicians that provide the treatment, then Inevitably, there will people that feel uncomfortable, feel that they're being discriminated against, 
uh, carry a lot of sort of stigma um, because they're sort of taking themselves into a, what they perceive often as quite a conservative traditional medical model. Um, and I think as you just need to, to start to break some of that down and you can't do that by changing the tertiary system overnight. You do that by creating a broader range of access points. Um, that doesn't remove all the issues around stigma and discrimination. Obviously, they're still there for many people. Um, so there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, 18,000 is a great start. Um, I'm hoping that we can get to 40,000 in the first sort of year, which would be remarkable. Um, but year one was always going to be, in a sense, the easy year. Um, 40,000 is... So, Greg... Go, go ahead, Annie. Oh, sorry. So, sorry. So, you know, just uh, in that context, I guess you've touched on a little bit some of the... I mean, the, the figures are remarkable. You're absolutely right. And uh, But you're also right that there was always thinking that uh, there would be those who would come forward early because uh, they had been waiting for treatment for some time and were keen to get it. One of the issues you have touched on, though, for those who weren't uh, waiting, if you like, is the issue of trust. And um, for many people, I think, uh, particularly if people have had difficulties, um, poor experiences in the health system in the past, uh, trusting the system can be quite a big issue, uh, particularly with um, a major treatment. Uh, one of the really big uh, differences with the new treatments is uh, the claim, I guess, that um, they're pretty much side effect, uh, side effect free, which is really different to the, the treatments that people have had uh, access to prior to this. Uh, what, what are you seeing in terms of side effects? Because it has been a real barrier for people to come forward for treatment, along with things like stigma and discrimination. So what sort of side effects are you seeing in practice? Um, and, you know, is the everyday reality of the new treatments living up to the results of the clinical trial? Sure. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that it wouldn't be hard to do better than the interferon-containing era. Um, those treatments <laughs> were incredibly arduous. Um, you know, the, the stories coming out of that era were based on the reality of trying to slog your way through six, often 12 months of uh, injections and tablets that caused considerable sort of impairment in people's quality of life, caused psychological disturbance, mm -hmm. caused um, overt depression in many people. Um, so the new therapies are clearly you know, far, far superior to that. Now, do they have significant side effects themselves? Well, well there are some. Um, and people reporting you know, headaches, nausea, um, sometimes diarrhea, um, but they are pretty sort of uh, manageable and it's a relatively small proportion, to be honest, that are uh, reporting significant mm -hmm. side effects. So um, it is a complete sort of turnaround in terms of the impact these therapies have on people's daily lives. Mm -hmm. um, so you go from a situation where you know, it really affected um, how people sort of lived their day-to-day their -day existence. It affected whether they could stay at work. Mm. It affected mm. just their relationships with other family members and friends and so forth, mm. and particularly the psychological impact of the therapies, to a situation where you might have the odd sort of uh, side effect in some people that's a bit annoying, but um, the reality is it's considerably less than anything from the interfering containing era, 
The other reality is that mm. the treatment's only for generally three months. Mm. Um, mm. You know, sometimes people have to take it for, for nearly six months, but most people are getting through the treatment in three months uh, with minimal mm. side effects. Mm. Yeah, and these are important issues because I think one of the things that has been a factor in the previous treatments is um, we know that uh, networks among uh, some of the key affected communities in relation to hep C are quite strong and often the bad news stories travel really quickly and efficiently and some of the good news stories don't travel so out there so fast and, and so well. So um, I think it is uh, going to be important to get some of the uh, good treatment experiences out there amongst people who are contemplating the treatment. Um, but it also is a relative thing, do you think, Greg? Because, you know, if you haven't experienced the previous treatment, to say, well, they're a walk in the park comparatively probably doesn't really mean that much to people. And um, I would suggest it's probably still important, isn't it, that people get access to all available information on how they might travel with the treatment and things they need to uh, be prepared for and um, how it might impact on their lives. Yeah, look, I, I think the, mm. um, the stories, the, the sort of positive stories um, are crucial and they're absolutely starting to come through. So you see it mm. all the time. Um, in patients that say, look, I, you know, I spoke to Joe, he'd been through the treatment, and sometimes that would have been mm. through, say, the compassion access sort of schemes that were running last year or through a clinical trial, and, and you know, I couldn't believe how, how well he went. Um, so mm. those stories are starting to, I think, not completely, but largely um, bury the bad old sort of interferon sort of containing mm. therapy stories. Mm. The other side of it, and I didn't sort of mention in terms of side effects because it's not a side effect, is that many people on treatment, in fact, get a month into treatment and feel better than they've felt for months or even mm -hmm. years. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because these new therapies suppress the virus very quickly. And for people who are getting direct effects from the virus, um, they can be to an extent, ameliorated, reduced. Um, so some people experience increased energy, some people experience clearer thinking. Um, and this is not just anecdotes. Um, this has been sort of mm. proven in very well-conducted sort of quantitative sort of studies that have evaluated quality of life and these sort of measures on treatment. So um, it's a real phenomenon and a lot of people sort of uh, give you that feedback. Um, it's not to say that, as okay. I said, some people do feel a little unwell on some of these treatments. That, that's absolutely the case. But um, it's, it, it's quite remarkable how well people get through these treatments. Okay. So we've got a picture here already developing great new therapies uh, funded uh, through government. So they're accessible for people in terms of cost. Uh, limited side effects, although acknowledging that some people uh, may have um, experienced a more difficult ride than others, but uh, significantly better than previous treatments. So let's talk a little bit more about access then um, in that context, because we've got these great therapies available. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the numbers across states and territories? Um, do you think there's, uh, we're pretty much seeing kind of equal access, so to speak, an uptake across the country or a there are some states and territories that um, could do better uh, than they're currently tracking. Okay, our new latest newsletter we put out um, an evaluation of what the proportion of people that we'd estimated to have been treated so far uh, by each state and territory. I suppose the first thing to say is it was 
probably more uniform than I thought it would be. Um, so look, the largest sort of you know, jurisdictions, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, are within a percentage point of each other, seven, eight, nine percent. Um, there are some variabilities. So for example, you go to Western Australia and only an estimated 4% have been treated there. Uh, Northern Territory, the same, 4%. Um, and ACT, 14%. So you know, there's a range uh, across uh, the jurisdictions. Now, I'm not completely aware of everything on the ground that's happening in those jurisdictions, uh, but I have some sort of idea what might be some explanations. Um, I think in Western Australia, for example, I'd, I'm not sure that they've got uh, many general practitioners involved in prescribing. It's still largely a sort of uh, a specialist sort of model. I think the geography of Western Australia as well, and obviously Northern Territory, I think potentially a higher proportion of Indigenous Australians with hepatitis C who may not be accessing as well as non-Indigenous Australians may be an element uh, in those two jurisdictions. I think we need to sort of look obviously more closely at that. And the other aspect that we'll be looking at this as we move forward with the data, we get access to more detailed geographical data, is that there may be gaps within New South Wales, within Victoria, within Queensland, even though the overall proportions look pretty comparable, uh, we need to look at how things are going to the inner city Sydney, outer metropolitan, okay. regional, uh, rural, remote. We also then want to look very closely at how access is by to a broad subpopulation. So what's access looking like among people who are incarcerated? What's access like among people who, who are still uh, in using drugs or injecting drugs? Um, what's access, and I alluded to this, like amongst Indigenous Australians with hepatitis C. So I think they're really crucial to look at those different sort of subpopulations as we move forward. Mm. So you've kind of mentioned there, Greg, um, around who might be getting access um, and particularly the need to track this properly over time and look at subpopulations, as you say, and major groups that, that uh, need to be getting access to these new treatments. As it currently stands, and I know it's early days, but um, what do we know about who's getting access to these new treatments and who isn't? Um, I suppose my experience is um, to know, somewhat... Um, different to that sort of general experience. Uh, but I can talk um, a bit about what I'm sort of seeing um, and where I sort of work. Um, so the sort of really rewarding and encouraging aspects is that um, the programs that we've sort of established in drug and alcohol settings and at Kirkton Road um, are sort of bearing fruit now. I mean, it's remarkable how many people that have commenced therapy at the Kirkton Road Centre. Now, I know that's a, a somewhat unique community health sort of clinic, um, but they've had 80 of their clients with chronic hep C uh, commence therapy there. And that's from a pool of probably about 400 with chronic hepatitis C. So to have 20% mm. of their population um, mm. who are largely uh, active injectors uh, commence therapy is incredible. Now, look, that will not be representative across the board, um, but it's a very sort of encouraging start. Um, and Greg, what do we know about our data systems being able to track the um, characteristics of people who are getting treatment? Have we got ways and means to uh, examine that? Yeah, look, I think there's a few things that we'll be doing. Um, 
The geography will be relatively straightforward. Um, we'll get um, details on the you know, postcodes and prescribers, and we're building up a sort of a geographical sort of um, map of prevalence of where people uh, reside in terms of those that have chronic epilepsy. So we'll be able to look at uh, the uptake by geography. So I think I think that will come through over the next sort of uh, few months. That'll be relatively straightforward. Uh, we get, can even get information on the prescriber type. So we'll know whether um, people are being treated in different settings, different areas by specialists, be they gastroenterologists or infectious diseases, whether they're being treated by sexual health physicians, general practitioners. So we'll monitor those sort of patterns of prescriber types in different settings. And, and that may reveal gaps um, geographically in terms of service sort of delivery. Um, then we'll be looking at treatment by the other broad subpopulations. We'll get information around the treatment uptake among people who are incarcerated. I think we'll be putting that data together. Mm -hmm. We'll have some information on what proportion of people who are actively injecting are being treated through the National sort of Needle and Trinch Program Survey, which will run in October. And we've added in some additional questions uh, because of the rollout of the, the new hepatitis C treatments. And we've asked questions about, obviously, have you been treated in the last sort of 12 months? Um, we've added in some other questions around reinfection um, in terms of whether people uh, become reinfected and uh, whether they get treated for reinfection because they're crucial questions for that population. So I think we've got a, a range of different mm -hmm. surveillance sort of mechanisms, probably better than any country in the world, to really monitor this sort of rollout quite well. So if we're looking at, at monitoring issues, Greg, um, just sort of quickly, uh, what do, we talked a bit about access, but what do we know um, around outcomes? Because we, we know that the outcomes from the clinical trials are definitely impressive, but we also know that some people won't have a successful treatment outcome. Um, how many people are we talking about in, in, in terms of not uh, having a successful treatment outcome? And what are the options for those people? Do we have options or sure. is it the end of the line, so to speak? Where yep. does that stand? So look, the, the clinical trial sort of based outcomes, uh, as everyone is aware, are, are pretty impressive, you know, around 95% of people being cured. Um, can we achieve that in the so-called real world? Um, again, I'm pretty confident. Look, uh, look, we might end up somewhere between 90 and 95%, um, but that's still pretty impressive. So we're going to be monitoring that. We're setting up a national registry of treatment outcomes that will cover a whole range of clinics, not just tertiary clinics, uh, drug and alcohol clinics, prison-based clinics, community health clinics, GP prescribers. So that'll give us a very good sort of idea as we move forward in terms of the real-world outcomes. I think the first few months... Mm -hmm. A group of people who have gone on to treatment will be, uh, in general, highly motivated. So you would expect their outcomes to be very impressive. But I'm, in a sense, as interested in the outcomes of people starting in six months or 12 months um, to mm. see whether those real-world outcomes uh, can be maintained. Um, mm. The other mm. sort of issue is that we'll look at outcomes, obviously, by the, the different subpopulations. Um, that'll be important. Um, there will be people that will either fail therapy or the, the therapy will fail them, obviously. Mm. They'll have mm. sort of virological uh, relapse after the end of treatment mm. and a group of people that will become reinfected. So they're two sort of key yeah. groups to hopefully be able to offer uh, further sort of access uh, if the individuals want to come mm. forward for, for retreatment. Mm -hmm. 
So given that a lot of the people who are accessing uh, hepatitis C treatment are going to be, um, have a history of injecting drug use, that's just a, a fact. Um, you've mentioned reinfection. It was raised as a concern in the listing process. Just briefly, do you have a particular perspective on that? There are some that think that um, people who get reinfected shouldn't be retreated, for example. What's your view on that? Um, well, my view is uh, pretty clear. Um, I think the first thing in terms of reinfection is that we need to acknowledge that it will happen. Um, if we're going to treat people that are actively injecting, some of them um, will become reinfected. That's inevitable. Um, if we want to offer the population to benefit from the treatment in terms of their individual benefit, reducing their risk of liver disease complications, but also potentially to use these treatments as treatment prevention to reduce transmission at a population level, we have to expect that there will be some reinfection. So the first thing is to acknowledge that it will happen. There will be people that become reinfected. Uh, we obviously want to optimise our harm reduction uh, strategies to try and limit people's risk of reinfection. We need to evaluate other strategies, include, including trying to sort of treat uh, partners who might be injecting together concurrently uh, rather than uh, st st staggering the treatment uh, of injecting partners to reduce the risk of reinfection. So we can look at some specific strategies, uh, but then the key to this is to then offer access to retreatment for people who become reinfected without any sort of discrimination and without making people uh, feel even worse than they probably feel. I mean, a lot of uh, people with hepatitis C, and I had one sort of individual case that uh, I know very well who sort of did become reinfected and, and he felt terribly guilty and, and, and shamed mm. by that, mm. that he'd sort of let the team down, so to speak. So. Um, mm -hmm. I had to sit down with him and say, look, I mean, don't, I mean, don't feel like that in the sense that um, this happens. Let's just deal with it as a health issue mm -hmm. and let's talk about mm -hmm. how you may become reinfected, how you might be able to reduce the risk mm -hmm. and let's talk about the options in terms of retreatment because retreatment in a clinical sense is pretty straightforward. So it won't be difficult mm -hmm. to treat a person who's become reinfected. They get reinfected with what we call wild-type virus, not they don't get rein, reinfected with res, resistant virus. So they should respond to mm. um, the first-line mm. treatments that we've been using very, very well. So it's not a clinical problem. Um, mm. Some people make it a problem because mm. of the stigma around reinfection. Mm. But even that, I'm sort of, I'm pleasantly surprised that I think, at least in Australia, that a lot of healthcare professionals are coming around to the view that we need to approach mm. this as a public health issue and a clinical issue. And I was really uh, mm. pleasantly surprised that when I presented a case in a forum not that long ago, that the, the large majority, if not the vast majority of clinicians said that they would mm. offer retreatment to people who became reinfected. Mm. So we've just got a minute or two left uh, in this uh, Happy Hepatitis Day podcast. Greg, I, I, um, I wanted to pick up one very small detail, but one that's been bothering me for a little while. Can you explain the differences between S85 and S100 prescribing? Okay. So when they set up this new system uh, of uh, rolling out the direct-acting antiviral therapies, 
what they wanted to do was, as I said, to broaden it beyond the traditional sort of tertiary sort of large clinic model. They wanted to allow general practitioners to be involved. So to allow general practitioners to be involved, um, the way to facilitate that is to move it onto what we call the general schedule. Um, so the S85 or general schedule means that any practitioner can prescribe the drug. So they have to be a registered medical practitioner and the therapy is then dispensed by community or retail pharmacies. So the old system, the S100 system, the therapy was prescribed by specialists and dispensed uh, largely by public hospital outpatient pharmacy. Um, so now, in fact, the, the majority, the large majority of treatment is being dispensed through the S85 scheme or community uh, pharmacy dispensing. Even the specialists prescribing these new therapies, such as myself, are generally prescribing through the S85 scheme. So most of the patients that I'm starting on the therapies, rather than having to wait a week for them to get the drugs organised through the hospital pharmacy, can go along to a community pharmacy, often get the therapy that day, or at the most generally the next day, and just get going. Mm -hmm. And they can go to a pharmacy close to where they live. Not all retail pharmacies are dispensing, but uh, there's a great list, for example, Hepatitis New South Wales is set up to sort of put in your postcode, they'll tell you where the closest pharmacy that's involved is. So it's just making the system more accessible for everyone. And, and that's going back to one of my earlier points, the beauty of the Australian model mm -hmm. is to, to make this mm. as easy and as accessible to people who want to come forward and access these incredible new therapies. Is that a good place to leave it? I think it is. Any, yeah, anything very positive further from you? Yeah. Well, I yeah, guess it's... Um, I think it's a positive note to finish on. Mm. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you for bearing with a few technical difficulties as we set off on this podcasting adventure. And uh, happy Hepatitis Day to everyone. There'll be details of the, the Kirby Institute newsletter on our podcast website for people to refer to and a few other uh, bits of information and uh, resources for people to follow on. So thanks very much, Greg. Uh, a pleasure, Carla. And thanks, Anna. Greg. Well, Annie, that was great to talk with Greg. Um, so now it's a chance for you and I to unpack some of the issues that he raised. And one thing I really thought was interesting was the, the mention of the notion of choice, that we should be building different ways in which people can access hepatitis C treatment in ways that suit themselves. And I think this is a real key thing to, to think about here. Um, you know, these uh, fantastic treatments are, are have to get into the mouths of people somehow and and that means that um, people have to make choices about where they want to go and, and where they trust to go and, and the issues of stigma and discrimination as we know pervade the experience of living with hepatitis and I, I think this is something that we're yet to really get to grips with in this new treatment era what what do you think Annie what's your thoughts yeah, look, I, I agree with you, Carla. I think um, it is a massive issue and one that still needs quite a bit more uh, thinking and discussion and certainly action. Uh, I think to date, uh, some would say appropriately, the focus has really been on getting the funding sorted for the new treatments, getting all the regulatory and policy frameworks in place to make those available to people living with hepatitis C in Australia. Uh, but that by itself, as we well know, 
there are no silver bullets in, in, in healthcare. And so we know that you can have the best uh, treatment available to people, but it is about, at the end of the day, about access and how you create that access. And that becomes just so much more difficult when you're talking about a group of people um, who, many of whom, of course not all, but many of whom will uh, have certain degrees of uh, disenfranchisement or isolation or disconnection, if you like, from the health system, um, often also from their own support networks mm. and, and society generally. Uh, so I think it is well and good and I don't mean this um, in any kind of critical way towards anyone, but it is well and good to talk about choice and different models of access and opening up the system and people being able to sort of move about and, and meet, have their needs met in the way that best works for them. But I think we are quite some way from being able to deliver that in practice, and there's probably a lot that would need to be done. I'm not. What, what do you think about about that? Yeah, I mean the the, the literature, the the work we've done, and and from overseas as well. You know, it it, it speaks volumes of people's um, experience of being told in various ways and in various places. You know, you're not really worthy of our time and treatment, and I think that's a big step to to move from that position to a position where people feel entitled to step up and say actually no that's not how I want to receive treatment I want something better or different or or that suits me in various ways and that's you know going from zero to 100 in four seconds kind of thing and that I think will require lots of work um in networks to explain what it is and that people, yes, do have entitlements to get this treatment and, and actually start for people to believe it internally. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think uh, there, there's layers of, of experiences that, that come with this for people. So for some people, as Greg himself, he mentioned that you know what they're seeing at the moment is uh, a bit of a rush to treatment, if you like. People who have been waiting... Um, you know, been expecting this treatment to arrive for some time, who may well be in places where they need the treatment quite quickly because of the state of their health, um, and, and others who might just be starting to hear about it through their networks and whatever and are already connected to care, uh, healthcare. But for those who um, are not connected to the health system in any kind of regular way, um, that, that's there's got to be a whole... I would think um, particularly a, a peer-driven or um, a, a, a campaign, education campaign that really is driven by people directly affected themselves to really get uh, conversation happening about the new treatments. One of the things that strikes me about this is um, as someone who is uh, living with hepatitis C, um, it is surprising, given how many people are, are infected um, and affected by hepatitis C, the, the access to information is not as easy as you would think. And what often travels around, and I mentioned this in the interview with Greg, is the bad news story. You know, that, that travels really quickly, and that's not a, you know, specific to this uh, issue or this group of people, but the more disconnected you are, 
from uh, the health system in particular, then the more that th those types of stories are probably going to reach you uh, more than the good news stories do. So uh, we need to find a way to address that, I think, uh, because there's been a fundamental shift here, a really big change. Uh, so we've got to change the whole discourse, if you like, um, around hep C treatment from one where people basically know that it was quite toxic, really, mm -hmm. uh, stay away from it, really, at all, uh, you know, at all costs, if you could possibly do it, unless you really desperately needed the treatment for health reasons, don't do it, wait, these new ones are coming, they will be significantly better. That's what the message got through. But, you know, believing that suddenly we're going from that to this, it's quick, it's easy, it's, uh, you know, very few side effects or, you know, side effects for very few people, um, you know, treat, treatment happens quickly and, it, and it's all um, even better success rates in terms of the outcomes. That whole kind of story, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to maybe find it a bit of a challenge to buy that, go into your issue of trust. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the evidence is around trust. I know you've done a lot of work in the search around the trust issue in healthcare, but I suspect that's going to be a really big issue. Well, let's let's leave trust for another day. I mean, it's it's World Hepatitis Day. We need to um, shout from the rooftops that these new treatments are available for people who want them, and uh, and and know that there's a whole lot more work to to do to ensure that we um, absolutely tackle this beast. So, Annie, do you want to tell us what's coming? And it's coming a fantastic up? opportunity. To... Yeah. Do you want to tell us what's coming up next time on Speakeasy? I will. Um, so uh, next is um, an interview with uh, Dr. Max Hopwood, who is well known to you, Carla, but who works um, also at the Centre for Social Research and Health at University of New South Wales. He is a, a very experienced uh, researcher, has done a great deal of work over many years on a range of topics, in particular in the area of hepatitis B, but also HIV. And he's going to be talking with us um, on all things related to men who have sex with men and hepatitis B and HIV and the work he's been doing in that space and going to be doing. Great. Well, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, head to httpcsrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.